Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Greg Rapport. Greg is the founder and executive director of Age Out Angels, a mentoring program based in Columbus, New Jersey. Well, welcome, Greg. Thanks so much for joining our podcast series. How are you today? I'm just fine, Lynn. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. Oh, thank you. Yes, we did actually speak before when you interviewed me for your program. That's right. <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> I love what you do. Oh, thank you so much. Well, why don't I go ahead and get started because you're the focus of this discussion today. And I want to ask you if you could please share before we get into the programs that you run, I'd like you to share a little bit about yourself and how it is that you're connected with the foster care system in the first place. Well, this was purely unintentional on my part. You have to understand I'm in my 60s. And when I was 61, I was ready to retire. Mm -hmm. And I, I did what all the people of my generation do when they're ready to retire. We go to the library <laughs> and I'm combing through the books and I chanced upon a book called On Their Own by Martha Shirk and Gary Stangler. And I heartily recommend it for anyone who's listening. Anyway, I start to read On Their Own. It's stories about children who age out of the foster care system. And two things just hit me like a rock. The first is nobody knows this stuff. No one knows the plight of children when they age out of foster care. And the second was, this is it. I have to spend the whole rest of my life, however long that is, you know, doing something to try to help these children because this is like wrong. It's just wrong that children would grow up and then age out into something that's just so unknown for them and so scary. That's how I got started, you know, in, into child welfare. And so from then, then I had to, I had to learn like sort of how to start a nonprofit. I came from the corporate world my whole life and I had to take courses about child welfare and trauma and all the things that go, go along with being effective when working with children who age out of foster care. And, you know, there was no looking back. You should have seen the look on my wife's face when I came home. <laughs> well, is there anything in your life that you think particularly resonated with the challenges that these young people face? Because it really, I mean, I'm sure you've come across other things in your life that didn't strike you like this did. Nothing ever struck me like this did. I was a teacher for, for a while, so I enjoyed working with children. But I mean, there was something that happened to me when I was very young, and people say that it must have had an effect on this. My parents and I, were, we were in a horrible car accident when I was 11. Mm. And it was in Georgia, like a long way away from New Jersey. So my brother and I were essentially homeless for about the next two or three months. We were sent to live with various relatives. There wasn't much of a foster care system in those days. It was in the 60s. And, you know, we were sent to live with different relatives. And a lot of them were nice. But then, you know, I met up with the psycho relative who actually broke my guitar and threw me out of the house at 10 o'clock at night in a snowstorm at the age of 11. So, you know, so I, I did have a sampling of what a lot of these children go through. And, and I sort of get it from that point of view. I can see that kind of like kinship care. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it falls under that heading. Well, after you found out about the challenges these young people face and you got all learned on the issues and uh, trauma and so forth, what did you do? Well, then I, I went headlong into research. You know, I went research and learning like crazy. First of all, if, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about starting a nonprofit, 
call everybody who will talk to you in that space. And most of them won't because, you know, they get this call a lot. You get this call from people who say, yeah, I want to start a nonprofit to help children. And everybody knows three months from now, you won't be around anymore. But whoever will talk to you, talk to them. And I, I was so lucky because of the book I read that Gary Stangler was one of the authors of, right? So I Facebook Martha Shirk and I Facebook Gary Stangler. And it turned out he was working for the Jim Casey Youth Foundation in St. Louis at the time. And he was this guy. He was so wonderful. You know, he sort of explained to me how you set the organization up. And he hooked me up with his chief financial officer who taught me how to do all of the finances related to this sort of thing. You know, then CASA was nice enough to talk to me in my area. I'm sure there's CASAs everywhere, right? Court-appointed special advocates. Those people, Laurie Morris, willing to talk to me in, in the area. And learn. Just learn. Learn everything that you can. And don't be afraid to be stupid. Because if you don't ask the stupid question, you'll stay stupid. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you got to just ask anything that crosses your mind so you can just gather all that information you need. That's right. That's right. And also ex-social workers, like retired social workers. You know, when I did some press and people started to hear what I was doing, if I could meet a retired social worker who would tell me the truth because they had nothing to lose, they didn't have to worry about losing their job or anything. And I, one named Nancy Scott, I mean, she's, I still talk to her. This is five years later and I still talk to her because she's absolutely priceless. And she's also, she has no filter. <laughs> she, will, she will say, Greg, this is bound to fail, this idea <laughs> that you have. And, I'll, and she'll tell me why. So then I had to set it up. I had to figure out how to set it up. And I drew on my teaching background for how to set it up because, and we'll talk a little more about this later, but when I taught, I taught in a very special program and it was an individualized instruction method. And there were no more than 14 kids in a class. And it was one-to-one relationship with each child. Each child was on their own curriculum. But it wasn't like Montessori where they were going at their own pace. We were pushing them. And, and what we found was that uh, those children could pass like SAT tests when they were in eighth grade and ninth grade. So the value of individualized education presented itself to me then. And I knew it would never last because no public school could afford to do that. The, the money would never be there. So that's how I set up Age Out Angels. I said, everything is going to be purely independent. Each volunteer mentor will work with one youth forever. Because in the foster care world, every single person that that child has ever known, loved, cared about, or showed them any kindness, eventually abandons them. Whatever it is, the money runs out, you know, whatever, whatever the reason is, those people are gone. And I wanted my people to be the one person who's different, who never, ever leaves them. And we say to the kids, for, for our first goal is to dance at your wedding. Our second goal is to be aunts, uncles, and grandparents to your children. And when did you start this organization? What year? So that happened uh, in 2015, May 5th, 2015. We, we did our 501c3. And it was really uh, designed to be primarily a mentor program to start? Yes. In the, in the beginning, it was, it was just one-to-one -one mentoring. And part of mentoring, you know, a big part, in fact, uh, there, there's two components. One component is coordination of care. Because what happens is there are a lot of services and things that are available to youth and they don't know how to access them. They're like easily stumped. Like kids who come out of foster care can be tough as nails on the street. But if a person in a government office says to them, no, they accept it. 
<laughs> you know, they don't know how to overcome obstacles. Whereas you and I know that when someone tells us no, that's where the conversation begins, right? So we do that. We do coordination of care. And then mentoring, mentoring is the love component. Mentoring is the component they never had. Mentoring is holding their hand while they're doing their homework, not pushing them around and telling them what to do, but just being there, listening to them. Foster kids don't get listened to enough. Decisions are made about their lives without their input. I set it up with those two things in mind. It's mentoring and coordination of care. Okay. And what are the ages of the youth that you work with? Well, we start them anywhere between 14 and 24. But, you know, as I said, we go beyond. Our, one, our first client, in fact, is now 25. Oh, okay. That's fantastic. And how many youth do you work with then? Well, we have 27 now in our regular mentoring program, and then I have another 11 in a special education program that we could talk about later. Do your mentors have a particular curriculum? And what I mean is you know, even just like a checklist, like these are the things we want to make sure that this young person understands, knows how to do, that you have these particular conversations. Is there anything structured like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but there is a lot of flexibility within the program. First of all, we have a fairly extensive training program for the mentors. People come into this from all different ages and all different backgrounds, and we have to sort of get everyone together on the same page. Everyone has to be trauma-informed. They have to be vetted properly, you know, fingerprinted and all that. Uh, you know, we have a couple of forms, and one of them is called a needs assessment. And that a needs assessment has the nine categories that we focus on food, rent, clothing, all the basic things. There's nine categories of that. So we use that needs assessment every six months. We revisit it and determine where the gaps are. You got to remember that children also have other people in their lives when we meet them. We don't meet them on the day they age out. Usually, you know, we get at least six months or maybe even more. If they're 14, we'll, there'll be seven years till they age out. So there are other people on their care team who do jobs. So we don't want to conflict with their jobs and we don't want to do double work either. What we want to do is find the gaps. You know, where are the gaps? And the gaps come in strange places. You know, one of the best things a foster youth can learn is how to drive a car. That's going to mean a lot when they get out. And it's also going to drive them to learn how to manage money so they can buy a car and all that stuff. Okay. In New Jersey, we call it the division. You might probably call it DIFUS or something, right? The division will pay for them to have behind-the-wheel training. And usually the caseworker will show up with her car so they can take their behind-the-wheel test, right? But what, what they don't have, what they don't have, and a, lot, and a lot of these youth are not that good at studying, right? So there's no one to help them pass the written test just to get their permit. I see it all the time. So that's where the gap is. That's what we need to help them with. You know, so sometimes when you get a child who's 14, you're really kind of more of a big brother, big sister in that capacity. Let's, you know, show them where the joy in life is, help them with their homework if they need it, that sort of thing. Um, and then as they get older and their needs become, you know, more critical, thinking of, you know, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Safety, shelter, you know, those sort of things. Make sure that those layers of that pyramid are able to be realized and that they have backup plans. You know, what's your plan when you age out? Well, I'm going to live with my friend. Okay, so we know that's going to last two weeks, right? Until they don't get along anymore. So what's our plan B? 
you know, going to be in that situation and, you know, where, where, where can you work and stuff like that. So it depends on the age. Under 18 is sort of a different set of goals than over 18. Sure. You want to help them graduate from high school and uh, things like that. I mean, those are, that's the first, I think, real big milestone in their life at that age. And determine if, you know, actually what their skill level is, because what I see all the time is people graduating from high school. This is not just foster youth, but people graduating from high school in urban environment who are handed a diploma and have sixth grade skills. You know, they've gotten social promotions for all these years. And so we need to figure that out. Like, are, are they ready to go to college? If they are, then, and they want to, then we'll, we'll get them a SAT prep course right? Because all of the children that they're competing against to get into a college have had that. That's 50 to 100 extra points on the test. And so what we want to level that playing field for them. And if they come out with sixth grade skills, then we'll figure out a way to get them remediation so that they, they don't have to go to the local college where they have to pay $1,000 a semester that they don't have for remedial reading and math. Well, do you have any staff that helps you with this or is it primarily volunteer? This is 100% volunteer. I used to have administrative volunteer before the pandemic hit, but, you know, it's, it just isn't, it wasn't working. When I, when I started this, uh, Gary Stangler told me, he said, you, you better learn how to run it on fumes for the, for the first few years because no one, no one donates money to a concept anymore, you know, until you can show results. So I thought, okay, here's the way you run this thing on fumes is first of all, I'm not going to have offices and stuff. I'm not going to waste whatever little donated money I get on brick and mortar and telephone systems and stuff like that. So two things happened as a result of that. The first is when this pandemic hit and people couldn't even go to their offices anymore, I'm not saddled with all of that monthly overhead. But then the other thing is, you know, my administrative people who were coming to my house couldn't do that either. So I I sort of lost that. Now I'm doing all the typing and filing (laughs) and everything. So I do this. I do this about 16 hours a day, five, six, seven days a week, you know? Right, right. So you are the mentor contact. So if they have questions and they need some support from the organization, you're it. Yeah, I'm sort of the hub. Okay. Just wondering about that. And do you do the training with them as well, or do you partner for that? No, I I do the training. I I developed all the training based on the courses that I took when I was learning it. Now, you know, and I wanted to do a training that would be specialized for us, not general. So yeah, I developed all the training courses and that's a skill. Well, you have the, yeah, sorry. You have the teaching background. So you had that ability. And and also the skill I got in, in another prior life was uh, I used to do instructional design for pharmaceutical companies. Oh, there you go. So that did marry nicely for that preparation. Now, you had mentioned that you teach the mentors about trauma-informed concepts. For any listeners who don't know what that is, many will, but some won't. Could you please explain what that means? Sure, sure. The short version of it is that like everybody understands that youth are in foster care because they have suffered abuse or neglect, right? And so people understand that. We get that. And we also get that it can be a secondary trauma when they are yanked out of that environment, because even though it's horrible, it's the only environment they know. So those are two areas of trauma. Now, what we teach in trauma-informed is that when you add up all the trauma that they've faced, 
And it could have been every day. They could have gone hungry every day of their lives. They could have been physically, sexually abused, all those things. When they suffer those traumas without a real chance to heal, because a lot of times that trauma is suffered at the hands of their caregiver, right? When there's no chance to heal, that's called complex childhood trauma. And when you have that, especially between the ages of zero and three and zero and six, it actually has a physiological effect on your brain development. And so then fast forward to adolescence, right? Then you get a teenager who reacts to you in ways that appear to be maladaptive and can be really off-putting. But when you start to understand that physiologically things have happened to their brains that cause them to be, for example, ever vigilant, because they never know when they're going to get hit. So they're hypervigilant. And if you bump into them in a hallway, they might try to hurt you because that's the only thing they know. They might not know how to manage their affect. So they may react, you know, really sort of emotionally and can't be calmed down over simple things like who took my applesauce because they've never been trained by their parents how to manage their affect. Also, they could have cognitive delays caused by that. And that's, I think that hurts me the most is when I hear, you know, that a child has cognitive delays because you can't really fix those. You can, the child can still grow up, find joy and have a family and a job and everything else, but they're only going to go so far. And there's a good chance that they've dropped out of school because after a while they can't keep up with the materials. So it's the physiological effect of brain development and how it manifests in adolescent behavior, that if you don't know, you shouldn't be working with these children. Any organization that works with this cohort that doesn't give trauma-informed training shouldn't be. You'll do more harm than good. I've also heard from other folks I've interviewed that the challenge that young people have as far as reacting, say emotionally, based on their background it negatively impacts when they're trying to get an education in college, when they're trying to work for an employer. They run into situations that are stressful and they react because they haven't been taught the skill set to mitigate the feelings they have. They will have the feelings. How do you manage them so that you can interact effectively with the people around you in those circumstances? So then the question is, how far do you go as far as informing employers of these challenges, of people in the higher education institutions of these challenges? It's the same question that's always get asked about children who are special needs. Like if you're sending an autistic child to a job interview or something like that, right? The same thing, how much should the employer know? And honestly, I believe that the employer needs to know. It's not something that is wise to hold back. Yeah, I agree. I know of one program that does that. Not that I'm aware of all the programs in the country, but at least one, their mission is to place young people aging out of foster care into jobs. And that's part of what they do is they go into the partner employers and they do training on this. Absolutely. Well, think about it if you're like a classroom teacher, because that's where a lot of this training is happening right now. If you're a classroom teacher and you have a child who has special needs or, you know, has suffered severe trauma, you'd want to know that, you know, before you trigger right? Before you say something or do something that triggers behavior, you know, you'd want to know what those triggers are. Teachers are just trying to get through the day, same as everyone else. So yeah, it's, it's important for people to be informed. Of course, it's also important for them to understand that there's no need for them to point that out in front of all the others. It's still private just because the employer knows it or the teacher knows it doesn't mean the whole world has to know it. Right, exactly. 
Now, with the mentors that you bring on board, are you looking for individuals with particular backgrounds in, say, psychology or working with young people? Or is it really open to anybody who has a heart for youth? Yeah, their background really doesn't matter because I want to homogenize them into what I need from them, right? Now, we do have a volunteer staff psychologist who is absolutely wonderful. You know, like she'll know exactly the right way to react to a given situation. She's amazing. So people, you know, my volunteers can tap her at any time and get extra knowledge. But no, I get all ages. I get all races. <laughs> I get all all different backgrounds. Makes no difference to me. It's, we're, we're just happy that people care. Yeah. And there are a lot of people out there who want to help in some way. And volunteering as a mentor in a program like yours certainly is one way. But one thing I've heard consistently is that it's a bigger challenge to find men who are interested in being mentors. And I'm just wondering if you found that to be the case. Oh, absolutely. In fact, that we start by doing an overview presentation. So when people write to me and say, I'm interested in your organization, I have like a 25-minute online overview presentation. And I can tell you that I do that twice a month. And each time there will be five people, one male. But when I need tutors, not mentors, but just tutors, male engineers and chemistry people will come out of the woodwork. Ones who have told me I don't want to be a mentor will come out of the woodwork and say, what, tutor math? Sure, happy to. And you know, the interesting thing is sometimes those people can become mentors even though they weren't trying to. And I don't mean the position mentor, to actually be a mentor to that young person, a chosen mentor. Yeah, they fall in love. It happens all the time, all the time. To have that tutoring aspect in your program, I like that because one, young people need to be tutored. I believe it. You know, there are a lot of educational challenges, and tutoring is a great opportunity. But like you're saying, it's kind of a side door to getting some mentors, even though they're not in the mentor role per se. Especially now during this pandemic, when mentors can't see people physically, they can't interact in that way. I'm not suggesting that my volunteer mentors go out and risk getting something that could kill them. So right now, matching is difficult. And so matching children who need a skill with a person who has a skill is a really good way to start a relationship and see, you know, see if it blossoms from there. And I'll tell you about 70% of the time it does. Yeah. You know, it's always an interesting thing. We use the term mentor. As I was growing up and a young adult, I always thought of a mentor as the person you choose who has had a positive influence on your career, your life, what have you. It's more of a, I really respect you, therefore I see you as a mentor. But when you say we have a mentor program and we're going to match you, we're going to assign you to a youth, it has the impression of being forced. And I know that most programs don't want it to be forced and they find ways to really match the best adult with the best young people to maximize the chance of that connection. What do you do to try to do that matching? Well, here's the thing. I mean, what you just described is extremely organic and wonderful, but it takes time. I mean, that's usually something that develops over time. Before the pandemic, we used to have these fabulous matching parties and we'd have big dinners, you know, and in those parties, I would set it up like speed dating. The youth would be in stationary positions. Okay. So they wouldn't move. And the mentors, the prospective mentors would go around with their resumes and they'd each have five minutes to try to sell the youth on the idea that they should be their mentor. Oh my gosh, I love this idea. <laughs> 
remember, we're all strangers. There's not that much organic opportunity, even in that, right? We're all strangers. And, and it was wonderful. I mean, we'd have so much fun doing that. And the youth would invariably choose the wrong person because <laughs> they, they are basing this whole thing on very shallow you know, sets of things like who has the best hair, who's the prettiest girl. (laughs) There was one girl who who was a mentor in the beginning and she was just young and beautiful. And all the boys wanted her to be their mentor. (laughs) And I would call them up and say, you know, unfortunately, I'm not in the business of indulging your teenage fantasies, but (laughs) I I do have someone who can help you get into, you know, the military or, or graduate high school. But, you know, the, the point is that sometimes they did actually match and get a person that they wanted. But even when they didn't, they still felt like they were part of the process. And they knew and then everybody knew each other. Right now, everyone's fragmented. But they, they knew the other kids. They knew the other mentors. And, uh, you know, a lot of that was, OK, now Age Out Angels is having another party. Let's say let's say we're going to put police and teens together because I like to do that. I like to put police and teens in the same room teach each that the other is human. So we're going to do that party and they'd come to that party and, oh, these are the same kids. I know these kids. And sometimes they'd meet that child as a school function or something like that and they know each other. So we had that whole social thing going in that way, but you know, we just can't do that now. And I don't think we're going to be able to for probably about almost another year. I think that's how long it's going to take for them to really resolve this fully. Well, I'm just thinking, I I have some familiarity with these virtual platforms, and I know there are some that have breakout room capabilities. I mean, you could possibly do a kind of a similar speed dating type of approach with breakout rooms. I suppose so, but it's it's just not the same as when the person's in front of you. And the room, I mean, think of the room in that situation, right? You have caregivers, you know, sitting there overeating, right? Then you have the kids, like maybe 10, 15 kids at different stations, and the prospective mentors walking around and selling themselves. It's so wonderfully chaotic. You feel the energy is palpable, and you, you just don't get that out of a breakout room. We use breakout rooms for tutoring. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, let me ask you this. How large is your geographic reach in New Jersey? Who, who do you serve up there? Well, the whole state of New Jersey. And then, and then what happens, of course, is, you know, children move. So, you know, we had one move to Philadelphia, one move to North Carolina, and one keeps yo-yoing back and forth to Topeka, Kansas. And one is a moving target. You never know where he's going to call me from and need a shelter. We try to be New Jersey, but life is life. And do you then continue following that young person? Does the mentor stay in touch with that young person, regardless of where they go? Yeah, once you start with us, you're stuck with us forever. <laughs> whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. You can't get away. We're going to love you, you know, whether <laughs> even if you can't stand it, we're still going to love you. Yeah. You know, it's challenging. I know that there are a lot of programs that have limitations in regard to how far their reach can be. And I, I like hearing that you stay in touch, even if it has to be virtual. It's so easy to do now. One time I had a lady who was running a program in my area who got up to me at a meeting and said, I have a grandson who's having a really hard time and he's in Tennessee. Can you do anything for him? Right. So, all right, she's an industry person. What can I do to help this lady out? And so, you know, I called the guy up and he's in Tennessee and he's living in his van with his girlfriend and he's hungry. Right. Greg, can you just help me get some food? And so I found out he was in Jasper, Tennessee, I think, and the SNAP office was in Chattanooga, which was not that far away. 
So I called the office in Chattanooga. I said, this guy is coming in. I'm advocating for him. See if you can get him food stamps, right? So he goes in the office and he calls me about two hours later and he goes, they said no. And, and I said, all right, well, why did they say no? You certainly qualify as far as I'm concerned. And he said, because I don't have an address, they don't know where to mail the EBT card. And I said, okay, go back in and ask them very politely if you can use their address, the address of the office. And you'll come back when the EBT card is ready and you'll just pick the card up here. And like three to five days later, he was eating. He had food in his girlfriend. So, I mean, that's how easy it can be to help someone, especially when you're working virtually. It's Google searches and things that, you know, the child is just, I don't know, they're just too upset. They're under too much stress to really help themselves. And they have never been taught how to help themselves in that way. And that's part of it. You know, you want to advocate for them, but you need to teach them to advocate for themselves. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Time is flying and I'm having a great time talking with you, but I don't want to lose your special education program. I want to hear about that. Please tell us. Thanks. I'm just like so proud of this. So I, let me back up a little bit though in the story, because when I came out of college and I was a teacher, this was in a special religious school. And I learned right away that the 180 day school year isn't all that necessary because we had children who were getting half day secular studies and half day uh, religious studies. And so they were doing the same curriculum in 90 days, except even less because private schools don't have to do the 180 day schedule. So we were doing about 160, maybe 165. If it snowed a little bit, we take the day off, you know? So what we were doing with children in say 80 days or 75 days was having children outperform the children in the public schools on standardized tests. And like I said, I thought I would never see that, you know, again. And I, I stopped teaching. I did it for like four or five years. You couldn't make money as a teacher then and you can't now. So God bless teachers because they're driven in the same way I am. But anyway, fast forward to Age Out Angels. And, you know, I do a lot of civic meetings and stuff because I want Age Out Angels to have a footprint in the community and be part of the larger solutions of the community. And I met the woman who runs the continuing ed program at Mercer County Community College. Her name is Peg Gold. And she said to me, uh, you know, I started telling her all this about you don't need a full school year. And she said, I'll go you one better. I have a program that in eight weeks of hard work, a person can increase a full grade level. So you can take a youth who only made it through eighth grade and in four eight-week sessions, in 32 weeks, they can pass their well, GED, they call it HSE now. It's called high school equivalency now. But they can get their high school equivalency in 32 weeks of hard work, and they will know more than a child who gets social promotions and comes out at a sixth grade level. So I just fell in love with her immediately, you know? And so we put together this program along with another company called Eckerd Connect. So there's three partners in this, three partners in this program. Oh, you're familiar with the drugstore, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so when they sold their drugstores to Rite Aid, I think it was, they took a whole lot of that money and made a nonprofit, God bless them. So there was three partners in this program, and now I'm sort of, I do the recruitment for the program, and I put together the tutors and call everybody first thing in the morning to make sure they're awake and fed, you know, with a love. That's what we are. And Peg and Mercer County Community College have the programs, and we have these programs that are for not traditional learners. Like, well, what if you work all day? How are you supposed to go to high school? 
You can't, you know, you just can't conform to that kind of a schedule. So we have classes at different hours. We have classes at different skill levels. And we can help with people if they happen to have individual special needs like dyslexia or something like that. We'll work with them, give them individual tutors. Because if you think about it, if you're doing a full year in eight weeks, you can't fall behind. Like, you know, if you miss a day, it's like you missed two weeks. So you can't fall behind. What we do is we do education for one hour in virtual classroom. And then we do one hour of private tutoring so that the child understands everything that just happened in that lesson. Right. And we do it privately because one of the main reasons children don't learn is because they're afraid to raise their hands and feel humiliated that they don't know something. Right. So we do private tutoring for an hour. Then we have the third hour of that class, like, say, the morning math class. That's a debrief. So everybody can come back in and show off, you know, the assignment that they just finished. If someone out there is listening to this and knows of another program like this anywhere in the country, I'd love to learn about it and communicate with those people. I don't know about a single program anywhere that's put together like this. And at the same time, they're working with Eckerd Connects. They have meetings with Eckerd Connects all along the ways because we want them to have careers when this is over. We don't want them to spend their lives flipping burgers. We want them to have careers where they can earn enough money to be independent and be free to fall in love, right? Isn't that what it's about is finding the joy in life and, you know? feeling love, being loved, those things are like so incredibly vital. We call them core emotional needs. And you can't do those things when you're living under like constant stress. You know, you just can't. So that's my program. It's called Bridges to Employment. Is it specifically geared to youth aging out of foster care? Well, yeah, you have to be foster at any time. Like it, it serves, uh, I believe the age range is 16 to 24. And, and you have to have at least been in foster care in New Jersey at some point. This is only for New Jersey youth in, in foster care. But you don't have to be in it now. Right. And is that under the Age Out Angels umbrella? Is it one of your programs specifically? I know you're partnering. I'm just wondering, as we look at your website, it's going to be listed as one of your programs? Or is this a side partnership? Yeah, it won't be listed as one of my programs. So who owns the program then? Is it the community college? Yes. Okay, got it. Now, while you're talking about these fantastic programs, if people wanted to donate to your organization, do you accept donations? And if so, where should they go to do that? We happily accept donations. If they go to our website, it's ageoutangels.org, all one word, ageoutangels.org. There are donate buttons everywhere where people can do that. We don't knock ourselves out because we don't need that much money. You know, it's not set up that way. But when money comes in, we put it to good use right away. Like, for example, I spent a small boatload today from uh, a fundraiser that I did for my birthday on Facebook to buy textbooks for the children who are in the Bridges program. Because, you know, even though it's all virtual and online, it's it, sometimes not all the time their internet works and stuff like that. So they should have a textbook in front of them so they don't fall behind. So that's what I'm doing. I'm buying a bunch of textbooks and Ethernet cables for the kids. Yeah, if you want to donate, God bless you. And 100% of your donation, let me make this part clear, 100% of your donation goes to the children. It doesn't go to pay people's salaries. It doesn't go for our advertising budget. You know, it doesn't go for mailings so we can solicit for more money. 100% of that money goes to help youth. That's wonderful. Well, I, I know we have a few minutes left, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to share any thoughts that you might have about how the foster care system can improve. 
in all of the podcasts I've had, I've had some really great conversations and brainstorming around this question. So I pose it to you. What ideas do you have about either the states, the federal government, the agencies themselves? What can be done, do you think, to improve the foster care system? Well, I mean, I believe there are several things that can make it better. I think in a couple of ways, they're working towards those now, one of which is from the Family First Prevention Act, right? Which says that, you know, not only is reunification the goal, let's see if we can not yank the child in the first place. Not every child who's in foster care needs to be in foster care if the right supports can be provided to the biological family. So, you know, I'd like to see that be developed in a huge way. You know, before we're that worried about reunification, so we don't have to reunify so many children. So that would be great. Also, I would like to see the age of adolescence increase to 29 because there isn't a damn thing magical about the ages of 18 or 21. We need more time, more years with those children, because if you think about it, they've had, you know, 16, 17 years, 18 years of pure hell. Then in a space of like, you know, a six month program, you want them to know how to age out independently, manage their finances, get a job, have soft skills. But come on, man, they've spent their whole lives waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so we need more time to work with them. Those are two really big things, is providing more supports for biological families so that children don't need to be removed and increasing the age of adolescence to 29 so that we have enough time to work with them and get them integrated properly uh, into society. And then when you think beyond that, I think it's important to realize that the foster care system itself can only go so far. There are 450,000 kids. The system is tremendously overburdened. And it has to be a cookie cutter system because it's too large to be otherwise. It's a government cookie cutter system. It has to be. But that doesn't respond to the needs of an individual and it never will. So what has to happen in that regard is all of the agencies who are like mine, and there are 800 nonprofits just in the county that I live in, just in Mercer County, New Jersey, there are 800 nonprofit organizations, right? I, I believe it's the obligation of those nonprofits to not badmouth the foster care system and not you know, do a whole lot of meetings and pontificating about how they think the foster care system could be better. But instead, you know, let's work with the people who are, are trying to run this foster care system and let's see how we can help them improve this. You know, let's find the gaps and fill those gaps. Because what I've found, you know, is that a caseworker is happy as hell to have some help with a child. They don't turn help away. Sure, they're overworked. Exactly. Overworked, overburdened, over caseloaded. So we have an obligation as nonprofits to be, you know, a, a little less independently brilliant and slightly more cooperative with the system as a whole. Yeah, I have been thinking along those lines as well for quite a while, thinking there has to be some way to partner nonprofits with government, even if it's just expectations and or funding and, and not just fighting for the funding. Let's say you've got the federal government saying, okay, states, here are the expectations for young people in foster care. One of them is going to be that they will be prepared to age out and be adults before they leave your program, whatever that age might be, before they leave your system. And here's some funding. Now you states, you partner with your nonprofits to make sure that can happen. How you do that is up to you, but here's the bar that you need to reach. 
Yeah, and, and we do actually have some of that in New Jersey. I don't know if they have it in other places, but in New Jersey, we have a thing called the CMO, Care Management Organization. It's a separate company that contracts to the foster care system to provide those extra services. Once again, though, the problem arises because children are individuals, right? So there, you have this program, and it's going to teach nutrition and money management and you know, all those seven or eight key things that children need. Now, there's no guarantee that the child will show up to that, number one. Number two, they'll go to half the program, and then they'll move to North Carolina. So that's where the gap becomes, you see? I saw this Facebook post the other day where somebody said, you know, I think all children should be taught money management and how to wash their clothes and all, you know, all these life skills before they graduate high school. Who agrees with me? Share and save and all that stuff. And I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, that's a great bumper sticker. But there's so much more when you look into this and see youth in foster care as individual people. What if case management could break out of the county and state limitations? And my thinking is a young person goes into foster care in a particular state, they get a case manager, social worker, what have you. But no matter where that young person goes, that case manager sticks with that young person, whether it's by phone, virtually, now that we have the technology to do that, that would provide some consistency that is not there right now. Well, yeah, but you can't do that with a 25-kid caseload. Well, but you wouldn't be visiting them, so you're actually saving some time. It's a great idea, but it would require a smaller caseload to do. I'll tell you why. You have some children who, who kind of fall under the heading of borderline personality disorder, and those children will tie up your entire day. You know, one child will tie up your entire day. They'll, you'll, start, you'll ask one question, and they'll talk for the next hour and a half. And in that hour and a half will be 300 problems, none of which could ever possibly be solved that follow a conversation in a circular motion that just makes it impossible for you to really, really help them when all they want you to do is listen. You see what I'm saying? Like you get that child and then another child calls you up and says, you know, I'm in Poughkeepsie and it's raining. Can you help me? And you're tied in too many different directions. That's the main reason why I do one-to-one. I don't want a, uh, one of my mentors to have two children. You know, I want them to have one. So then maybe the expectation is that the young person have a mentor of some kind through some program like yours, as well as a caseworker. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's ultimately what we strive for in that situation. And then what happens is through the program like ours, the child turns 21. And then all of those other people who were doing good are suddenly gone. Dyfus is gone. The CMO is gone, right? And they're left with essentially nobody. Then we could take the reins at that point. Okay, so we have, to, we have to cede the control to the state until the child ages out of the system because the state is ultimately responsible for that child. But then once the child ages out, then, you know, there's nobody else arm wrestling us for control. That's how it works, ideally. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, Greg, I would love to keep talking to you about this, but we have actually come to the end of our time. I really have enjoyed learning about your program. I wish we had a little more time to talk. Maybe we can get back together in the future and converse some more. I know we didn't hit on your radio program yet, and there may be some other topics we could go over in the future. That'd be wonderful, Lynn. I, I look forward to it, and you have to come on my show one day soon, okay? I would love that. Well, thank you so much, Greg. I really appreciate you taking the time today and sharing everything that you did. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. 
For everybody listening, thank you so much for doing so. We try to put out a podcast every two weeks or so, so keep an eye on our website, or you can find us on pretty much any podcast distribution platform. Thanks so much.